From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Amy Allison, founder of She the People, who recently held a very successful presidential forum for Democratic candidates in Houston, Texas. And after that, the Reverends Gary Williams and Willard Bass, co-founders of the Share Cooperative, join me to discuss food insecurity in the innovative manner that they seek to address it. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Back in April, She the People hosted the first ever presidential candidate forum focused on women of color. Women of color are among the Democratic Party's core constituencies that contributed to Democrats' decisive midterm election results. The forum focused the nation on the issues important to women of color, including racial, economic, gender, and social justice. Eight of the then 22 candidates appeared in Houston, Texas, to say that the voices of women of color will not be ignored in the 2020 campaign. We are honored to have Amy Allison, the founder of She the People, on The Public Morality. Amy Allison, welcome to The Public Morality. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. First of all, congratulations on an excellent event. I appreciate that. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty amazing, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, and that's why we're having you on, to talk about this amazing event. I want to begin by having you talk about the overall work of, of She the People and the significance of the event beyond um, what seemed like some amazing photo ops. I want you to talk about the work and, and the importance of the event. Well, I launched She the People last year after many, many years of working in politics, frustrated that we weren't winning a politics of justice and that with, particularly in the last couple of years, with Trump in the White House recognizing that we have um, amongst um, uh, people in, in, in the country and especially in swing states, even states that Trump won in 2016, we have plenty of people in order to form a very powerful progressive coalition. And we call that broadly the new American majority, but the core of that, the Democratic Party's most critical voters that never, never get uh, appreciation are women of color, uh, led by black women as the highest vote turnout. So I launched She the People to organize and really tell a new story to the nation about the leadership and the numbers and the political vision of women of color. Um, we're amazing organizers, and if the Democrats want to win, they win, we want to win the White House, we want to win uh, Senate seats, we want to win the Senate back, uh, it, that it's time for uh, there to be a focus on specifically speaking to and motivating women of color. So that's what She the People's doing. I mean, the, the presidential forum was the biggest, boldest move I could imagine, and I just imagined it six months ago, uh, that would put women of color in the center of the national political conversation for the first time. And so the fact we had eight candidates and a room of nearly 2,000 women in a swing state of Texas, it was it was an incredible um, showing. We just pulled the number of articles um, and uh, uh, radio segments and television segments that were done about women of color, she the people, and uh, issues related to the event. It was 4,700 
in a space of three days. So we broke through. Um, the question is, are we going to be able to build in the momentum and actually have a conversation about women of color translate into real investment and building a new coalition so that the Democrats stop chasing after Trump voters and white conservative uh, uh, voters who are unreliable Democrats and have been pushing the whole party and politics rightward? Are they going to focus and center on women of color as uh, the cornerstone of victory? So that that is, is, is my goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about you mentioned some of the issues. Talk about maybe some of the issues that are a priority for she the people, and and how might any of those differ from say non women of color? Well, um, after 2016, it was pretty clear that race was the biggest determinant in the voting booth, because the majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. This was a shock to even some white women and larger, you know, political so-called experts, because we, you know, women of color were lumped into something called the women's vote you know, or the women's agenda. But after 2016, it was pretty clear uh, that women of color were uh, very distinct political act- actors in our democracy and were the least elected but most uh, most likely to support a broad-based justice agenda. So I think, I think in that sense, women of color are kind of, this is the breakout group who is a, it's a multiracial group of people who are identifying as women of color as a term of political solidarity, who are the core of the inclusive multiracial coalition. It's the same kind of coalition that elected and reelected Barack Obama that has um, been behind Democratic wins. Boy, when I say we delivered on the, the, the midterms last year, it really is, if you look, district after district, it was women of color who, who were um, delivering the Democratic power, power vote. So I think this is a time for us to distinguish ourselves from um, groups that absorb, like if you say black voters or you say the women's vote or you use the phrase that you commonly hear in reporting, women and minorities, it's, or, or, you know, it, it, it erases. Women and people of color. Is that- women and people of color. <laughs> it erases women of color's very, very important role. And so we are demanding that our understanding of politics be advanced to uh, bring recognition because we are one of five voters in the primary, in this upcoming primary, one of five. And so for us to be recognized as the powerhouse that we are is uh, is the beginning of the political transformation I think the country um, is in the midst of and that women that women of color can lead. You, you, you were recently quoted, at least I saw the quote, void of any context whatsoever. We can't have an all-white ticket. And I was hoping... Um, you could put some nuance around that because it just left, no, left alone. <laughs> I remember saying that to um, Joe Garofoli in his podcast for the San Francisco Chronicle. See, it gets around. It, I'm in North Carolina. It gets around, and you can't. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, if we have an all-white ticket, we're going to go down the same path that Hillary Clinton did when she uh, selected a, a white man running mate. Tim Kaine of uh, Center the for the justification, Virginia. you'll remember at that time, was he spoke Spanish. Just think about that. In a party that's half people of color and 25% black, the Democratic Party leadership and its standard bearers at the top of the ticket, presidential and vice presidential, have to reflect the diversity of the country. And um, an all-white ticket doesn't do that. Remember, the, the strongest Democratic Party core voters are women of color. And so uh, when, when I said that, I said, look, 
we have a, an embarrassment of riches. We have many candidates. I think there's 20 in all. And some of them, many of them, um, would, be, uh, would be terrific as leaders. But we have this unique opportunity to have uh, more diversity in terms of um, men and you know, race and gender diversity than we ever, we've ever really had before. So um, let's not forget that the candidates who are on the top of the ticket have the ability to inspire uh, high turnout, have the ability for, you know, to, be, to bring communities and different parts of the country in, or you could have an all-white ticket that doesn't do that. And I think that would be a tremendous mistake, given the, um, the strength and diversity of the candidates that are running for president right now. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Amy Allison, founder of She the People, and we're discussing the recently held, successfully, I might add, uh, presidential forum in Houston, Texas. Amy, going to the event itself, there was this moment, at least this is how it came across on television, uh, when MSNBC's Joy Reid asked Beto O'Rourke, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, why should women of color vote for you? It initially seemed, or at least felt, like it, it, it was an awkward moment. And you were there. Was it an awkward moment? And if so, is there something telling about that going forward? Well, we decided at She the People that we would pose that same question to all the candidates who participated, all eight. And it was clear that some, first of all, it's a new type of question. There's a lot in that question. Why should women of color vote for you is to recognize women of color as a distinct voting block. It's to make an argument to a group that uh, most national level leaders have not thought of or considered. And it's asking a very simple question. You would think on surface because it's not a gotcha question. It's a, it was an honest, hey, make your case kind of question. Mm-hmm. You would think that it wouldn't, be, wouldn't stump the candidates. But in truth, because it represents such a significant cultural and political shift that it required someone like former Congressman Beto O'Rourke to take a moment. I really respected that. He took a moment to think about it. And his response really demonstrated that he understood not only the power of the electorate, but showed, showed tremendous respect. He said, look, I don't expect to, I don't, you know, I don't expect to just have the vote. I, I, I expect to earn it. And I earn it by listening. And I earn it by meeting you and to, to hear the concerns and to, and to adopt policies that really address the issues. Mm-hmm. To me, that was a very respectful response. Um, some candidates were ready for that kind of question and others were not. But the fact is we, we asked the same question, really one potential president do you feel us? Do you see us? And in what ways will you carry our issues to the White House? How will you um, address the issues that, that we are expressing that, that really Democrats and Republicans alike have by and large ignored? How, do, how, do, how can we trust you? And 18 months out from the election day, it really comes down to the X factor of trust. We're asking, can we, can we trust you? And um, I thought that was a really good moment, not only for Beto O'Rourke, but it was a, a good opportunity for us to gauge all of those things with each one of the candidates. Well, it's interesting that, that the, we're talking about uh, Beto, Beto O'Rourke, and earlier you talked about my words, not yours, but you talked about a paradigm shift, in, which is she the people is participating in, and I found it ironic that a, pres- a presidential candidate 
wasn't uh, condemned because he did not give a definitive uh, uh, boilerplate answer. He, he, like you said, he thought about it, and he says, I've got some work to do. He didn't say, I have it, I've got some work to do, which is a sea change in and of itself. Right. Well, well look, we're not asking for perfection. There is no such thing in our political leaders. But I think what we were doing with She the People is we're asking for authenticity. We're asking for a, a, uh, a credible, a cred, credible um, embracing of our and thoughtfulness about our issues and who we are. And also, we're also looking for bridge people who demonstrate they have a heart for people that are different. Because the truth of the matter is, out where you live, South Carolina, here in California, where I live, and in Texas, where we were last week, these are multiracial societies that we live in, and um, there's no majority and there's no minority. It really is just everyone in the mix. And in order for us to have an effective politics, we have to have leaders in the White House and other places that demonstrate they have a heart, that, they have, that they're thoughtful, that they are willing to um, evolve their thinking, that they want to communicate, that they have something in common with, with groups. For a white man like Beto O'Rourke, from a border town, he exemplifies this kind of um, effort that I think white men who are right now overrepresented in elected office, um, it's like by three times um, in, in compared to their population, but it is the kind of leadership, um, the evolution of kind of leadership that, that I think we need to see much more of um, in order to have the kind of uh, leaders in our democracy that are going to really truly ref reflect the population. How do you keep the concerns articulated, not, not ex just at the event, but representing the larger efforts of, of She the People? How do you keep them at the forefront, given that you're, you're nine months away from the Iowa caucus, and as you said earlier, you're, what, 18, 19 months away from the general? How, how do you stay on the forefront? Uh, we're we're going to do several things, and uh, tr uh, trust me, um, holding the presidential forum 18 months before uh, the election next year in 2020 was strategic because we wanted to uh, shape the conversation early um, and to uh, really put women of color in into the national spotlight. But that's not all we're going to do. Um, on May 18th, we began a series of She the People town halls to uh, in swing states. And we're going to go to Richmond, Virginia, to Virginia Union. That's a HBCU. Um, in Northern Virginia, and we're going to go to Georgia and Florida, Arizona, and uh, other states, depending on how you know how big and how much organizing we can do in a short period of time. The goal is this: we need to um, continue to strengthen the networks of women of color within swing states, because if we think about it, Trump won those states. He was able to not by popular vote; he lost the popular vote. But he was able to get enough electoral votes out of swing states um, to go over the top. So if we if we look at those states that I mentioned, um, where the percentage that he won was not huge, we can we can it's not insurmountable. And elevating and having a high vote turnout uh, of women of color and positioning them as organizers, positioning us as organizers for a broader coalition, uh, can actually win those states. Even people who are arguing, hey, we need to win back Trump voters, there's PACs and a lot of people, including uh, Joe Biden, who now just jumped in the race. I mean, his people are arguing, hey, we need to win the Midwest. 
we need to win Wisconsin and, and, and Michigan and, um, and Pennsylvania. Those are states that Trump also won. But I'm looking at those states, and for Democrats, the core vote is still black women and women of color. It's still that. And if we uh, focus on expanding um, and uh, engaging black women in a state like Michigan, we can overcome the 10,000 uh, vote gap and that, that Trump won that state. So strategically, that's how we keep uh, women of color front and center. We're going to be doing polling. We're going to be doing um, more media opportunities to explore what women of color think and how uh, we're reacting in the context of the presidential and the context of some of these um, key Senate uh, campaigns that are happening around the country. Uh, well, finally, during, during, during the event uh, as founder of She the People, was, was there a moment when, when you felt, dare I say, like a, like a proud parent, similar to what I personally witnessed with you and your son and me with my son at the YMCA? So did you, you know, many, many years ago, so did you have that proud parent moment as this was unfolding? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was with Joy. We, we peeked out from behind the curtain and saw thousands you know, over a thousand women of color. Most of us are never in a room about politics with that many other women of color. It's beautiful, and the energy was electric. I peeked out, I said, oh, my goodness. I had studied as part of writing a book, which, by the way, is not finished, but the book was, you know, I'd been writing for the last three years. It was called, you know, called She the People. And I became an expert in all of these movements, and one of the things was that I learned where the term women of color was born right in Houston in 1977, the country's first and only national women's conference was held in Houston. And um, Bella Abzug and some of the very early mm -hmm. congresswomen had organized this as a way to pass large initiatives like the ERA, which, by the way, had a, had a hearing today in the House. It's pretty amazing. So they were doing, they're saying, what's the women's agenda? And here's the women's agenda. But it was a white woman-dominated conception of what the women's agenda was. But in Houston in 1977, a group of black women who were delegates to this convention came with their own, you know, their vision, um, they're very justice-oriented, that dealt with education and housing and um, uh, poverty and the criminal justice system, a, a justice agenda that was different and distinct than, than the, other, the one that had been presented as a women's agenda. And the Latina... Asian-American and indigenous women leaders who were there, too, took a look at the black women's um, agenda and said, we want that, too. And right then and there, that group formed uh, and called themselves women of color. And the term, the political term of solidarity was born. So to go back to Texas Southern, you know, the nation's, the, the state's, you know, largest uh, HBCU, and to see us pick up the unfinished business that was started in, in 77 and even further back than that. When I looked out and saw that, I was like overwhelmed because how proud am I to have been a conduit for a movement on behalf of millions of us. We don't do it just for women of color. We do it for all the entire country. And to know that this was the moment for us to be seen and heard, that was my, my proud moment. I'm, I'm turning... 50 this year, so I get, you know, I work with a lot of women who are, um, in, you know, Gen Z or uh, millennial women who are coming up, and um, I'm just so happy to create a space for them to ex fully express their leadership, to come 
fully into what I call the fierce and loving leadership and collective power. So it's been quite a week for me, I have to tell you, <laughs> and, and, and there's more to come. Amy Allison, founder, She the People, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today on The Public Morality. It's much appreciated. That was Amy Allison of She the People. Stay tuned as I speak with Reverends Gary Williams and Willard Bass, co-founders of Share Cooperative, about food insecurity and how they plan to address it here in Winston-Salem. It's coming up on The Public Morality. Security, simply stated, is being without reliable access to a sufficient quantity of affordable, nutritious food. It's one of the many unstated taxes paid by those who languish in poverty. This is a problem that plagues far too many throughout the nation, and there is a correlation between concentrated levels of poverty and food insecurity. Here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where we broadcast the public morality, Reverends Gary Williams and Willard Bass, co-founders of Share Cooperative, have moved from the visionary to the implementation stage that, if successful, could provide a blueprint for others to follow nationwide in addressing the problem of food insecurity. We welcome them to the public morality. Reverends Gary Williams and Willard Bass, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. Thank you, Byron, for having us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, let's begin with you, Reverend Bass. Um, could could you provide for for our listeners um, your definition of a food desert? Uh, food deserts are uh, actually designated by the federal government as places where uh, individuals ha- lack access to, uh, my words, nutritional, healthy foods, uh, either through transportation or otherwise. Um, and and are, are, are those things so? It's it's not it's not just not having access to food, but there's also an economic component to that as well. Is that is that right? That is correct. And now now that was Reverend Williams. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get confused because I say Reverend Williams. I think I'm talking about myself. So I'm gonna get confused in this episode. But I'm talking I'm talking about Reverend Gary Williams. Um, but uh, so Reverend Williams, uh, you know. Uh, Reverend Bass talked about uh, how the um, uh, federal government defines it. Uh, when I look at the Department of Agriculture guidelines, the city of Winston-Salem has 21 food deserts, and I would imagine, given per capita, that has to be one of the highest in the nation. Are there others that are that are higher than that? That's, that seems like a lot, given the population here. Well, there are a lot, and regardless of where we rate in reference to our rating, Um, We're still concerned that, you know, that there are places here in Winston-Salem, in Forsyth County in particular, where people don't have adequate access to healthy nutritional foods. And so, um, yeah, the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, characterizes certain places in the country as being food deserts, and they do that for for the rationale or the reason of identifying 
those areas in the country which would be insecure, particularly food insecure. Now, conversely, for the, for those who uh, do not live in, in Winston Salem as, as the three of us do, uh, if if you if you drive up Miller Street, which is Miller is really really one long block, if you think about it, um, you pass by a Harris Teeter, and then you drive by a Publix, and across the street to Whole Foods, um, you make a left turn. Um, Immediate left, you're 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 less than a half a mile from Trader Joe's and another Harris Teeter. You drive for another another half mile, and there is there is a, a Walmart uh, grocery store. So explain to our listeners how can you have how can one area have six grocery stores in in less than three miles to each other, and then and yet other areas are completely void at the same time. How does that work? Anyone who wants to take it. Well, I'll take it. This is Willard. And I wanted to, to just add to this point about the number of food deserts. Actually, when we started this work three years ago, there was 10 food, 11 food deserts. And so now they're double. So to, that's significant, this idea that, you know, the, the, the uh, success or, you know, the impact of food deserts now is, is increasingly growing instead of reducing itself. So, so the idea that of these all of these food stores, if you will, that are located in this one area, what we have seen that the economic engine, if you will, the, the thing that determines whether businesses place themselves in certain uh, areas uh, is uh, exactly what we're seeing. The areas where these stores are placed are areas that are economically viable, that the per capita income, which I do not know what it is, but it's certainly up in the hundreds of thousands of dollars where people have the ability to buy these foods. And, you know, of course, uh, when they build, they're going to come. So all of those kind of traditional kind of model things that you look for and economic uh, effort uh, play themselves out well in the, in, the, in the community of Mill Street and the sort of thing because of the economic situation there. Well, uh, staying with you for a moment, if I could, Reverend Bass, um, are, are, are we saying as a commu- as a society that we can have you can have access to healthy food if um, for economic reasons? But isn't there isn't there a moral contingent here that 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 um, we should also concern ourselves with? Well, exactly, and that's to the point that, you know, how we form the cooperative in the harvest market is, is our idea is that, that even given the factors, if you will, of economic um, sustainability and those things that come together to form an, an economic decision that's successful, we have gone against that model. We have gone against the, the tide, if you will. What we're saying that the, the first condition that you should have is providing food for people who cannot afford or who cannot have access to food. And all the other things will be a part of the formula, but they're not to determine the formula as to whether we're going to place a store in a, in a, a community that's, uh, that has a need for food. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Reverend Williams, uh, isn't part of it also, we, we, when we talk about the economics, we're only, are we not only talking about one type of economics? Because if, I, if a community doesn't have healthy food, they're not going to be as healthy. If they're not as healthy, they're going to be seeing the doctor or, in these days, the emergency care. And that's going to that's gonna cost the community more. So it's really part of it is how we're looking at or how we're defining economics as well. Would that be right? That is exactly correct. And that's why, again, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is interested in this. Because from a standpoint of uh, the viability of a community, if certain parts of that community is hungry or food insecure, it impacts the overall health of the of the community at large. For example, just like you just got finished saying, you know, 
folks who don't have access to healthy nutritional foods are the ones who probably would require um, remediation in terms of health care. And they would be the ones that would end up probably at the hospital and emergency room seeking care simply because, you know, their diets are not su su significant or sufficient. Uh, does this, uh, the origins of food does this, does it have a racial component to it historically? I don't know that, you know, I wouldn't particularly say that it has a, 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 a racial component. I mean, it's just, it's clear to me that certain parts of our community are impoverished. And while they are impoverished, which means that they don't have access to healthy food, um, they're struggling. And so, you know, um, yeah, there is that element of, you know, of, of, of the community who is impoverished and therefore, you know, they don't have access to the foods and the nutritional foods that they need to help them to be healthy. Yeah, I think that I think that what what what's happening here, Byron, is, is not it's the fact that uh, this term food desert, I've never heard the term food desert until I was introduced to it. But what what how it's defined is basically some of the things that we as African-Americans, communities of, of uh, need, have always experienced. I mean, you know, my, my community could have been one that said, well, you know, you don't have major grocery stores here. You don't have access to, you know, those kind of things. So you got a food desert. Well, we, back then, we didn't know what a food desert was. But it's basically saying it's places where the accessibility to healthy food, the accessibility, if you will, to, to, the, to food that, uh, that you can afford, you know, all those kind of things do not exist. And so that's not something that just happened. It's something that has ha happened historically. Hmm. Now, now, though food insecurity is, is obviously a, a, a chronic problem, not just here in Winston-Salem, as you all have articulated, but, but it's, this is a national uh, problem. And, and one of the, uh, dare I say, positive takeaways is that to address this uh, in a city the size of Winston-Salem you can make some inroads because the, the scope of Winston-Salem allows, and even the city um, addressed some of this um, in, 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 their poverty, in their poverty conversations. Um, to that extent, talk about, uh, about the uh, Share Cooperative and, and, and how what you're doing addresses this, this larger issue of, of food insecurity. Well, well, to your point, the, the, the idea is that, you know, these issues are larger than can have resolution to, right? That's not, we don't even believe that. I mean, we're not at the table because we believe that it's such a large issue, you know, that it's something that is it, insurmountable. We, we came to the table to say this is an issue, it's significant enough that, it's, that needs to be taken care of, and we're going to do that. So we're in, an, we're in the game because it's an issue that we, that we embrace. It's an issue that's important enough to us, and it's an issue that we know that we can, with the right things, that we can make it happen. So we came to this work around this food about three years ago, and the the, the thing about food was um, it was an issue that was something that we felt was major enough that also could be coupled with this idea of addressing the disunity of our community. And so the food of, of providing food for those who are in need but at the same time providing means for us to come together as a community to work across the community to be able to address something that we would unite around, food became that mechanism. And so we, we did the work, and Gary can talk about the idea of how we you know, organized that, but the, our motivating factor was that it's, it, the issue is food, and we know we can do it, we just have to figure out how we want to do it. So we decided we wanted to do food, we decided we wanted to unite the community, so those two things then became this bridge that we're providing 
uh, in order to address this issue. Reverend Williams? Well, yeah, and again, we see the challenge. We see the challenge that, that again, health disparities are prevalent in our community. And a contributing factor to that is the fact that healthy foods are not available as they would be in other communities. And so what we're endeavoring to do, again, is to um, um, create um, this food cooperative down here at Peters Creek, Peters Creek and Academy, and prove and, 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 and demonstrate that this is a viable solution to this problem. The problem is, is that no typical food store will come down here because of the economic environment. They don't think that it would be profitable. But we are here, and we have folk who need food, people who are hungry. And so our solution is, is to bring to this community a full-service food market, which is owned by the community, owned by the community. And so by the community bringing together its assets, we resolve the problem, the problem of food insecurity. And so that's what drives us down here. Again, our goal is to prove the concept down here to acquire assets down here so that we can prove that the concept will work so that we can branch it out and take it not only to other parts of Winston-Salem, but other parts of the country as well. So, so for those who may be unaware, talk about what exactly a co-op is. So the history of co-ops, at least from the African-American perspective, uh, have their uh, early uh, beginnings right after the Jim Crow period when uh, African-Americans were free, if you will, and they needed ways to have access to the resources. And in, in, in cases, the resources like uh, like water and utilities and telephones, that there was not uh, much access for that, especially in rural areas. And so they would unite. They would come together and form a co-op. And a co-op would be the form of, of an entity then that provided not only the, uh, relationships, building unity, but, but the structure around uh, how they would then pursue getting you know, those things, whether it's government grants or whether it's um, loans or all those different kinds of things, the co-op would then take the responsibility for putting all those components together so that they would get what they need. So the community would come together. The community would recognize that there was a, a need and the community obviously has some assets, some skills, some gifts, some talents. And so the community draws upon their internal gifts and talents and bring them together to resolve a particular need. And so what a what a cooperative is, it's, it's a cooperation by a group of people to attend to a particular problem. And in this particular instance, what we've done is we've taken that business model and we're focusing it on food, food insecurity, again, down here in Winston-Salem, down here on Peters Creek, again, to prove the concept, to show that, hey, we can come together as a community. We recognize that there is a, a deficiency. Um, we have some assets. Let's bring those assets together to resolve the issue of food insecurity down here in this area. And then create that model, show that that model is viable, not only here in other parts of Forsyth County, but again, like I said before, in various parts of the country. So so what does that co-op look like physically once you know your vision comes to fruition? What does it look like physically? Well, uh, basically what is done is that uh, once the, the, the store has been built out and the ribbons have been cut, then the co-op and through a governing board will actually do the day-to-day -day operations. 
the, the general manager will report to the board and the board then will assist the general manager in getting the things that he needs in order to run the store effectively, efficiently, and as relationally as possible. That's the kind of simple terms for you know, what happens as a co-op. And, and a part of that will be then as people come in uh, and buy food, if there are those who uh, need assistance, we will provide that. And then we will also have a way that we can direct them toward our, our programming part of it. So if they need help on cooking or if they need help on learning more about nutrition, then the co-op will have a means that we can do that as well. And so when you ask about what what, what will the store look like, the store will be, it'll be a full service food market. Mm -hmm. um, the space that we, we have uh, uh, now seized upon is approximately 9,000 square feet. So it's sufficient enough and it'll have um, um, all of the accoutrements, all of the, the various items that persons would want in a food market. It would be on the scale of something looking something similar to a Trader Joe's. It would have um, prepared foods. It would have a meat cutting facility. It would have dairy. It would have fresh, uh, again, foods, vegetables, that sort of thing. And so it would be, we envision this food market, this harvest market as being a market that people from all over our area would want to come and share and be a part of, not only because we're providing first-rate service, first-rate food, but because of the social implications as well, us coming together to resolve an issue for the betterment of our community. You know, one of the things it seems to me and listening to, to both of you that uh, another another area, uh, and I think it was Reverend Bass who just touched on it, uh, I'm not sure, but you talked about prepared foods. One of the things, it, it's, it's you can say we have fresh produce. There, there's still, for some people, not for all, but it seems to me that for some people need to be um, taught how to prepare healthy foods. Would that be, would that be accurate? Is that... Yeah, definitely. What, one of the things that we've done uh, last year, we uh, we piloted our, our um, health and nutrition program um, in order to get an idea of what our program would look like for uh, commercially. And, and so we had cooking classes and these cooking classes where we, we partnered with the medical community and we provided uh, nutritional classes to learn about different types of food, how to cut food. But then on the other side of that, we had cooking classes then, then, that taught people how to cook the food. So if you had individuals that, you know, don't know nothing about some of the food that they have, maybe some exotic vegetables, so they think, then we have ways that we can teach them, you know, what they are nutritionally and also how to cook them. From So we're going to cover that on both sides of, of the store, if you will. So so where are you uh, in this continuum? How close are you to bringing the store to fruition? Uh, talk about that, if you would. Well, we're very close. We, uh, we originally hired a national firm, um, CDS, um, a cooperative development organization, they came in and they gave us a model because um, we wanted to be efficient in terms of, 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 of doing this project. And they divided the approach in three different phases. The first phase was to do the research and do the background and, and the due diligence investigation and begin to understand you know, the workings of a, co a cooperative. The second phase was the actual begin the business process of setting up a corporation, um, a, a firm, a viable firm, um, bringing folk together, just like Willard just explained, for us to do the cooking classes and everything to rally the community. And so we've now gone beyond phase one, we've gone beyond phase two, 
and we're on the cusp of phase three. Phase three is actual implementation. We have a shell of a grocery store out here that's approximately 9,000 square feet. And it's gonna take us approximately $2.3 million to, to, to build that store out and to, to acquire the assets and so forth, the cases, the refrigeration and everything, $2.3 million. And before we launch what we call the final phase or implementation, we'd like to make sure that we have the majority of those funds in place. Those funds, that $2.3 million would also include the first year's operational expenses of that store. And so we don't want to just launch into phase three, actually spending money without having our sights on all of the money that we need. And so to date, we've raised um, a little bit north of uh, half of that $2.3 million. And what we're now in the process of doing is raising the other parts of that fund. We've um, recent, recently initiated uh, preferred shares where we are asking folk in our community to come and to invest in the food store. We call them preferred shares. They would be shares that they would be a loan to, to, to the harvest market in the amounts of 5000 or 10000 or 25000 And after a period of time, then harvest market would then repay those loans. And so that's one mechanism that we've recently introduced to, again, help us raise the final funds. And then the last part of that is we've have, we're having extensive conversations with, uh, again, the city government and the county government and some others to invest in this because, again, of the social implica implications, the good that this project can give back to our community. And so we are, we are in the stages now of implementation. We haven't yet launched an implementation because we're at this stage trying to make sure that we have all of the funds lined up to, to do what we need to do, and that's to open the store. Uh, Reverend Bass, I'm going to direct this to you because you had mentioned earlier, I, I, think, I, I think I asked you why uh, you had so many stores concentrated in a one, one area and not in, in some of these um, uh, places that are known as food deserts. How do you, um, with this project, uh, not fall into the same pitfalls as say some of the other stores when they're making economic decisions? And I, you know, um, not only uh, can they make a profit, but I know they, they 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 factor in theft and loss. How do you factor those things in and still make this work? Uh, there's several answers to that. The first one is that uh, our, our store is a is a is a for-profit store, but our motivation, our vision is this idea of providing food, um, the idea of supplying respectful and honest engagement. is something that we want to do. Um, so that so we have to make sure we stay with the vision first. Uh, as far as making a making a profit or uh, making sure that we're meeting the bottom line. We have um, one of the uh, best um, reporting systems that we're going to use to make sure that uh, food coming into the store and produce going out to, out of the store and receipts being received are all tallied and, and all reported on an ongoing basis. And so we're going to have the best uh, system to give us the numbers, you know, like real time. Another part of that system, it, it actually helps us build relationships. And so we think that the key to this thing is to have good relationships with our members 
So one thing we're doing right now, we're actually in the process of starting a, uh, a buyer's club. We're asking our members to give us their receipts and give us the produce that they buy so that we can begin to stock them. And then the members can go online through this system and buy the product. So by the time we open, we're going to have some habits already formed with members that are going to be buying stuff for us regularly. So we hope that's going to make the difference in this uh, having this ongoing, continuous relationship between our, our customers, our members, and the store. Uh, Reverend, ba- uh, Reverend, Reverend Williams, uh, rather, um, how can those who are listening, there may be some people um, as far away as California listening to this broadcast, how um, can individuals um, uh, support your endeavors? Well, again, we would hope that they would visit us on our website, which is www.share, S-H-A-R-E, dash, W-S, dot C-O-O-P. And from our website, they can glean certain information. They can see where we are in the process. They can see the programming that we've laid out. And they can also uh, see our calendar of events and things that, uh, again, we're doing here in the community again, to unify the community. We would also hope that they would, again, join our mailing list on our website, and we would hope that they would consider becoming a member of SHARE. Becoming a member of SHARE would in, would cost $100, $100 membership fee. Um, that's $100 for the lifetime perpetually. And then finally, those who uh, who have the wherewithal, we would we would ask them to invest in one of our um, preferred share mechanisms, and that would help us in terms of gaining um, the final funding we need to get into or through implementation. Hmm. Reverends Gary Williams and Willard Bass, uh, co-founders, Share Cooperative, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. You can also subscribe to The Public Morality on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.